taking a look again at John chapter 3. This is our third message in this section, verses 1 through 15. If you'll read silently as I read aloud, verses 1 through 15 from John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 20, verse 31 says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the point of the book of John. That reading what is written and believing what is written that you might have eternal life. Now, it's an axiomatic reality that not everyone who reads these truths has eternal life. And to cut to the chase, the person who believes something other than that to have eternal life means that you must be born again, that person is not born again. That person does not have eternal life. So to add to the gospel and really add to this picturesque expression of how the gospel is applied to someone in that you must be born, you must receive, you must be granted, you must be caused to be born again. To believe something other than that, if there's some other approach to eternal life, it's not going to result in eternal life. Anything other than being born again, anything, everything, it's a false approach via a false gospel. And that should be a personal attack on every personal memory that you have of how you got to Christ if it involved you. It's a slam. It's an offensive hammer. It's a spiritual attack on man's pride. Here, Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, the 
teacher was coming to Jesus in a clandestine fashion because he was troubled. While he had done all that was necessary to achieve the pinnacle of religious reward on this earth, the acclaim of man, the belief and idea that he had arrived religiously, spiritually, in such a way that other men who had arrived religiously and spiritually looked to him as the ultimate teacher. And yet, he was troubled. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. The one who is not troubled while he maintains this idea that he arrived to eternal life by some other means, by some means other than being born again. The one who is not troubled is not troubled because he's not born again. He doesn't know the difference. So what Jesus does here is expose the very reality of what was going on in Nicodemus's heart. And this is how the pathway into salvation works. What happens, what always happens, is that a person is becoming increasingly aware of the fact that he has rested in something that's not trustworthy. He was convinced that he himself arrived somehow, some way, and he begins to be troubled. As uh, he is increasingly exposed to the Scripture, the Holy Spirit begins to peel back all these elements of legalistic self-righteousness by which he's convinced he arrived. And in time... That person does one of two things. He emboldens himself in his pride with what we would call an Arminian perspective, a man-made, man-focused approach. You might call it semi-Pelagian or even Pelagian. He's convinced of something other than the need to be born again. Now, most folks in that category would say, no, no, we believe that you must be born again. But they would also tell you that you must choose to be born again. And the scripture nowhere calls man to choose to be born again. Why? Because he can't. He can't. The deceptive legalism of the theology, the pseudo-theology of Jacobius Arminius is damning. And I have no, I make no apology and I have no hesitation about saying it exactly that way. If you are resting in something you did, then you are in great danger. You sit today under the wrath of God. And here's the rub of all this. You know you have no spiritual victory if you do that. But you don't want anybody else to know it. See, that's the condition of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a master. In fact, he was the master of hypocrisy, hiding sin and placing an unbearable yoke, an unbearable burden upon others that they too would fall into this practice of depending upon self and really avoiding that by which God brings about eternal life. Grace. Grace, a person who leans on his own doing, his own choosing, his own prayer, whatever it is, whatever work he has committed that he thinks was the linchpin that caused him to cross the bridge from being under God's wrath unto eternal life. Whatever that vehicle is, it's a work and it's legalism and it's an offense to God who executed his son for his own glory and for the salvation of all those who would trust in him. 
to add something to the gospel. <laughs> it's not just wrong. It's not just wrong. It's damning. It's a false gospel, and it always, always, always leads to a false sense of security. I gave you five points last week in an effort to support what Jesus is displaying here in this text that leads to the need for a person to be born again. Why is it? Why do you think it is that in our Christian culture, really our pseudo-Christian culture, that there's so little emphasis on a text like this? And so much emphasis on the idea of asking Jesus into your heart, which you never find in the Bible. Why is that? Well, it stems from laziness in the study, resulting in ambiguity and really confusion in the pulpit. But man, it works, doesn't it? You know, what unregenerate person wouldn't say, well, yeah, I'll add Jesus to my life if that's all I have to do. What unregenerate person who hasn't been called to repentance, who hasn't been called to place his trust in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, what unregenerate person wouldn't say, oh, it's that easy? Eternal life, all I have to do is ask this Jesus figure who's awfully nice into my heart? Any unregenerate person would do that, especially small children. And in the context where the whole purpose is to get as many children as possible to make a decision and get them baptized, it happens all the time. And then two years later, five years later, eight years later, they're baptized again and again and again and again. They walk the aisle again and again and again and again. And so then what happens is that the theology of sanctification, the theology of spiritual growth, the theology of spiritual maturity begins to get attacked. And people will say things like, and you can quote it with me, well, whether or not he knows the Lord, that's between him and the Lord. And that is a satanic lie. Everything you see in the scripture that depicts what it actually means to be a Christian is something that each one of us is responsible for, not just for our own lives, but out of love for others, to call attention to the false conversion. And here Jesus calls attention to the false conversion of Nicodemus. So we have a pattern. These five points went like this. The first point was the artificial character of the Pharisees. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to say that the term Pharisee has become synonymous with the term hypocrite. Not the case originally with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were intentionally devoted to the letter of the law because they wanted to honor God. Now, it's not to say that they were believers. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that their internal desire was to do that which was right. Much like... John read to you this morning from Genesis 3. You notice that Eve added to the Word of God? Eve added a little phrase. It's not a bad phrase, but it was a lie in terms of what God had actually said. And that was the moment in which the door was opened unto what we call eisegesis. We spend a lot of time talking about exegesis from the Greek term exegeo. We exegetically address the Word of God. We deal with the nuts and bolts. We call that a grammatical approach to the Bible. So we're dealing exegetically with the Word, and it's to draw out. Exegeto means to draw out. Eisegesis is to put into. So you have the concept of proof texting. You have the idea that a guy will stand up and he'll say, you know I'm right when I say these things, and then he'll run through a few passages of Scripture without any real explanation rooted in any exegesis in an effort to tell you that he's right. 
but it's not solid, sound Bible teaching. Well, as we look at what takes place in the heart of Nicodemus over time, it starts with Jesus' commitment to deal with the reality of what it means to have eternal life. Commitment you and I ought to emulate. The Pharisees initially were devoted to the letter of the law, but what happened was they exercised eisegesis by adding the Mishnah, which was the oral code. It was the oral laws, additional laws added onto the Old Testament. So what happened was they created an unbearable burden for everyone to follow. They pretended themselves to follow it. In fact, they did a good job of convincing people that they followed it, and therefore that burden was placed on everyone else. So I got to be like Nicodemus, or I got to be like Saul. I've got to be like the Pharisee. I've got to be like the rabbi. I've got to be like him who apparently doesn't sin. Apparently, he fulfills the law. And so, with the exposure of Nicodemus's heart, the whole system is unraveling right before his eyes. And Jesus, rather than dealing with all that stuff, simply deals with the matter of what it means to have eternal life. You notice Jesus doesn't really address exactly what Nicodemus says. He goes to what the real issue is. And he tells him that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then later he tells him that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of God. That's a slam on all Judaism. It's a slam on modern-day Roman Catholicism because in Roman Catholicism, a person is required to maintain the sacraments in order to maintain his salvation. It's not dependent upon Christ. It's dependent upon the person. So the artificial character of the Pharisees was such that they displayed something that was phony. They pretended. So we move into the text in point number two, the accidental confession of one Pharisee. And of course, we're talking here about Nicodemus. Verse one says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And so we said last time, the exposure of a self-deceived hypocrite will only have an eternal result when he himself is doing the exposing. Nicodemus doesn't come here to confess his false conversion. He comes here because he's troubled. He knows something's not right. He doesn't want to experience being put out of the synagogue, which those who would embrace Christ, according to John 9, would have been subject to. Nicodemus knew he would have been put out of the synagogue if he were embracing Christ or even subjecting himself to Christ. So he comes at night. And by coming at night, he has the ability to have this one-on-one, personal, probably very lengthy discussion with the Son of Man. Where it says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. (laughs) That's really an intentional confession. That's not the point of the text so much, but it is an intentional confession. He acknowledges the authority of Jesus, indicating that we know you come from God. We know that the things that you're doing are so fantastic you could only be from God. And that really is what draws him to the Savior. Well, point number three, the absolute condemnation of false conversion. Why? You might be wondering, why does Todd always put so much emphasis on the pathways to false conversion? Because I've seen it so many times. I've seen it so many, many, many times, and it's contagious. 
Most of you, maybe all of you, have been in some religious contexts where children especially were manipulated to make some sort of fleshly decision, right? And then they were persuaded to believe that that fleshly decision made them a child of God, and they were told, welcome to the family of God, and they were told that they're going to heaven because of a decision they made. And so you have this false sense of security, and then there's no spiritual growth. I mean, think of the conversions that you've seen in our church. For those of you who've been around for any appreciable period of time, think of those conversions. You've got specific people in your mind, and you can say, that life is changed. Maybe one of the most prevalent is Jacob Delgado. You know, you knew he didn't want to talk to you when you saw him. You know, you knew he just didn't want to be around you or us. And Heather, faithful mother, faithful to Christ, faithful to the church. You know, we're, this is what we do. We, we're going to church. And under faithful exposition at Regen a year ago, as you heard Jacob testify last week, he said, last year for me, Regen was salvation. God jerked him out of a disinterest and, and really a, a hatred for truth. And he saved him. And you immediately saw the same thing you see that I've seen six times in my life when I see a baby born. I've been there every single time. And then I see this voracious appetite for pure milk. And that's what happened. And we've seen that with every conversion we've seen in our church, every legitimate conversion. As far as I know, there's been one false conversion, and that dear soul whom we love, you know, we read her name before the church when she said, I know you're committed to the Bible, but I don't believe the Bible. And so we, subject to the commands of Scripture, called her to repentance. And she very sweetly said, I appreciate how kind and how gracious you've been, but I don't believe any of it. And we trust that the Lord, through our kindness and our grace, will bring her to repentance one day. We believe that he can. We know he can, and we trust him to do that. And so we still want to have opportunity for that. But where there has been a legitimate conversion, you've observed it. And some of you have even noticed, well, that kind of growth, that's encouraging me to want to grow more. You see a young person who is displaying a love for Christ, a love for the church, a love for the word, a love for evangelism. And it's messy. And it's bumbled because he or she is an infant. And they dawdle as they barely can walk. And they make mistakes and they say things that are wrong. And so we as adult Christians nurture them and pour into them and disciple them. And the person who says, oh, that discipleship thing, I'm telling you, I have a hard time believing that that's a Christian. For certain, that's a person who has never sat under legitimate discipleship where he has actually grown. What Jesus is exposing in the life of Nicodemus leads to an accidental confession that ultimately results in a real confession, as we will see down the road in the book of John. And we see that in Nicodemus. We see that Jesus exposes that absolute condemnation. In verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus would have known enough to know that the only other eternal reality for a person other than seeing the kingdom of God or entering the kingdom of God is eternal damnation. That's not a New Testament alone 
doctrine. It's a Bible doctrine. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So that would have struck at the heart of Nicodemus's religious system. He would have been aware that Jesus is saying, you are fleshly. You are not of the Spirit. So that false conversion is still an absolute condemned state. You're not closer to heaven. You're not closer to eternal life. You're not closer to Christ because you kind of get it sort of right. Charles Spurgeon said that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And Satan is a master at the almost right. He masquerades as an angel of light, and he shows something that's almost heaven-providing. But it's damning, and it must be exposed. Number four, we look at the aggravated cluelessness of the unconverted hypocrite. And so what we mean by this is that Nicodemus' confusion and his frustration, really his annoyance, with truth is exposed. He should have known better than to marvel when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Why would Nicodemus do this? Because he had no spiritual guts with regard to the Old Testament, which was the only testament at that point, with regard to his understanding of Scripture or his knowledge of Scripture. He had no skill. He had no spiritual insight in dealing with truth. Why wouldn't he ask a theological question instead of focusing on the illustration, the analogy? Because you can attack an analogy. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone attack someone else's good preaching because the illustration breaks down. Let me tell you something. Illustrations always break down. Why? Because they're illustrations. They're not the point. The illustration proves to help understand the point, but the illustration is never the point. But if you start attacking someone's illustration because it doesn't add up, it doesn't prove their point, you're missing the point. An illustration is never intended to prove anything. It's intended to help someone understand that which is clearly true. So Jesus points with this illustrative reality that a person must receive spiritual life by pointing to the matter of birth. Well, this aggravated cluelessness of Nicodemus is exposed in verse 7 when Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Clearly, Nicodemus was marveling over that. Nicodemus was certainly aware of Moses' words in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Nicodemus knew that. What did he do with it, though? He whitewashed it, like many people will today, every time they hear this passage. They will immediately throw up a wall when they hear this pervasive truth about the human condition. Somehow that doesn't apply to me, or somehow it doesn't mean what it says. Every thought is only evil continually. Rendering one unable to do anything that would bring pleasure to the heart of God. Nicodemus would have known that Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He would have known that Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He would have known that Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. But listen, his total depravity prevented his ability to accept his total depravity. Hear me when I tell you, you know people who are in one sense this close to receiving eternal life, but they run up against the ceiling of the doctrine of total depravity and they reject it because they can't believe that about themselves, so they become masters at washing it away. And that's clearly what Nicodemus had done. Clearly. His spiritual condition prevented his ability to fully understand his spiritual condition. Oh, but he seemed so smart. Do you know a Nicodemus? Do you know a Pharisee who seems to have this spiritual acumen? He seems to have some degree of spiritual scholarship. And he might be even able to have some sort of spiritual discussion. But he doesn't believe the truth about his natural born condition. And therefore, he believes he brought himself to eternal life by some effort of his own. Do you know someone like that? I'm certain you do. His legalism blinded him to his legalism. You can't find a doctrine in the scripture that's more important than this one. Rejecting this truth is the roadblock that continues to bolster the Pharisee in his Phariseeism. The person who becomes so skilled at this eventually becomes a person that people just kind of say, oh, he's an anomaly doesn't love the church, doesn't love discipleship, doesn't really love the word. Oh, but he, you know, he kind of hangs out with us. As with every qualified Pharisee, Nicodemus was well-equipped to shame others for their inadequacies, but unable to see his own wickedness. See, that person becomes very, very good at dissecting other people's lives in an effort to discredit them. You notice Nicodemus didn't do that in his conversation with Jesus. Nicodemus couldn't see the forest for the trees. He couldn't see the speck for the log. He strained the fly and swallowed the camel. The religious person who sees other people's inadequacies so well and spends so much time on them that he never sees his own continues to wallow in his own love of self. And it's the most dangerous place in which to be. He runs the risk of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as he continues to reject the gospel and pretend that he has received the gospel. He's hardening his own heart in the same way that Pharaoh hardened his own heart such that one day he well may receive the hardening of heart that God grants and there is no turning back. Now, why do Christians reject the biblical truth of total depravity? Same with every doctrine in the Bible. Are there legitimate saved people who reject the doctrine of total depravity? Of course there are. To know and understand this doctrine takes some time in the Bible. Reading and sitting under sound teaching. To receive and believe it takes some sanctification, some cleansing. It takes maturity. You're not unfamiliar with the fact that those who pretend to grapple with theological issues but aren't really studying the Bible, 
aren't really subjecting themselves to truth stay right where they are. So they have enough knowledge to be saved, but they're not really interested in any legitimate discernment that results in hard work in the process of sanctification. Here's how this works. In Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. See that? Leaders, teachers, pastor teachers, shepherds given to the church. Don't be surprised when you realize one day that that person who's really not subjecting himself, as commanded in 1 Peter 5, to the elders, he's really not subjecting himself to that leadership that one day he goes apostate and says, forget it all. Don't be surprised. I would say if you see that person who, who sits in that condition, he kind of plays with the church, but he has no interest in being subject to sound teaching, don't be surprised one day when that person three, five, even 10, even 20 years later says it's all a wash. He was never really willing to subject himself to the commands of Scripture, specifically the need for leadership. Now, Paul says that these are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That's how it works. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. You see the person who's not connected to a local church? He's not a joint. He's not involved in the equipping. And he's not just some rogue Christian who's out there kind of doing his own thing. He's not a Christian, especially uh, you can be certain of that truth if much time has gone on and he is unwilling to associate himself with a particular local church. This is how the church works. It's the only way the church works. Again, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, earlier in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So this aggravated cluelessness of the unconverted hypocrite often looks similar to the new Christian who's just not taught well. He rejects the deeper, more critical doctrines of Scripture. And what that ultimately does is it reveals who is in Christ and who isn't Christ. The new believer who's shaky, he's wobbly, he doesn't understand these things, he rejects these things initially. But eventually he says, I see it in the Bible. So he wants help with it. He wants to read the right things. He wants to subject himself to discipleship. He wants to walk through this process with others who have said, I don't totally understand it. 
but I see it in Scripture, and therefore I want to grow, and I want to trust the Lord. I want to be faithful. I want to be like those who are humbled by these truths. Back to Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, the new believer sees that, and he says, Oh, my word, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And he struggles with it, and he fights it, but he reads it, and he reads it again, and he reads it again, and he seeks counsel, and he seeks discipleship, and he seeks sound teaching, and eventually he says, you know, I've got to subject myself to this. He doesn't say things like, well, it doesn't really mean total depravity. He sees that that's exactly what it means. He can't bring himself to Christ. He can't make himself alive. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's by grace, not by some sort of introductory decision. How many times you know, have we focused on the fact that Jesus said, you did not choose me? And how many times have you heard, possibly, someone dismiss that? As if he meant something other than, you did not choose me, I chose you. I can't overemphasize how critical this aggravated confusion is. This aggravated cluelessness that is indicative of being an unconverted hypocrite. Who puts on a really good show. Some do a lot better than others. See, Nicodemus in verse 9 said to him, how can these things be? How can these things be? That's an expression of cluelessness. Remember, he wasn't totally clueless. Why, Why do we say that? Because he acknowledged that Jesus must be from God because of the miracles. So he knew enough to know something. And so what was happening at that moment is that, the, as, as we see in John 14, the Father was drawing him unto the Son. He was bringing him to the Son. While Nicodemus displays his confusion, his cluelessness, Jesus graciously deals with the truth of what he needed to hear. 1 Corinthians 2.14 is expressive of this condition. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And this was the condition of Nicodemus. He was yet in an unregenerate state in this interaction with Jesus. Well, five, we talked about the astonishing compulsion of Holy Spirit rebirth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See that? When God causes a person to be born again, he is then of the Spirit. He's indwelt by the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's fleshly. He's born of physical flesh, and he operates in the flesh. If you did just a a short examination of Romans 6 through 8, you would see that Paul reserves terminology in the flesh for the unbeliever. You can never say, I'm so sorry for how I acted. I was in the flesh. You ever said that before? 
you can't be in the flesh if you're a Christian. You can operate by the flesh. Paul says those who are in the flesh, spiritually speaking, are unregenerate, and they cannot please God. But on the other hand, those who are born of the Spirit are spirit. They're spirit-indwelled. They have the Spirit. The Spirit gives them life. The Spirit operates today with the same vibrancy that He has always operated. And in that vibrancy, the one who is indwelt by Him is able to grapple with truth, to receive truth, to understand truth. He appraises all things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, in the context of Scripture. He appraises them all. He has the ability to to wrestle with them. He would never say, I understand it all with full uh, understanding, full comprehension. But he says, I understand it, and I work to understand it, and I refuse to reject it. And so he doesn't pit the Bible against the Bible. He looks at the truths of Scripture and he says they're true. I'm going to do my best to understand them. This astonishing compulsion really is synonymous with what reformers have called irresistible grace. The idea that when God grants grace to the unregenerate, when he grants saving grace to the unregenerate, there is no possible way for that unregenerate person to reject it. It's irresistible. You see this in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He uses this natural, earthly reality to illustrate the fact that when the Spirit of God causes someone to be born. It has an effect. He had nothing to do with it. He didn't draw the wind to himself. In fact, after the wind passed by, he has no clue where it went. You can't see it. In the same way with spiritual rebirth, you didn't draw it unto yourself, and you don't really know where the Spirit of God went in terms of continuing activity elsewhere, but you do know that it impacted you, and it's more than a feeling. You know that suddenly you love righteousness. You know that suddenly you change, your disdain for people is peeled back. Your love for others is such that you want to serve them unto their better good. You're an infant, so that's all messy. But still, you, you think, I'm different. You know you're changed. You know you have a love for the Word of God. You want to obey it. We looked at Romans 7, look at it again now, Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is a really, really strong place of division between the work of the Spirit in the believer and the lack of the work of the Spirit in the unbeliever or really the false convert. This bearing of fruit of death now, you know plenty of people in your local body about whom you would say, there's a person who's having an impact. There's a person who's bearing fruit. Look at the lives changed. Look at the deeper and greater love for Christ as a result of that person's faithful involvement. And then there's another category of people, a much smaller category of people, about whom you would say, There's nothing going on there. 
might be a lot of activity, but there is no stimulus for love of Christ from that person. At the very best, in the private corners, in the private discussions, there is gossip, slander, dismissiveness, a refusal to embrace truth. Is this hard to hear? I hope it is, but I hope you will embrace it. I hope you will acknowledge that what Jesus has displayed here is the reality that false converts are among us. False converts were among the Judaistic community in which Jesus was living. It was a massive saturation in that culture. And so when God saved the disciples, they were different and they went under the attack. In our little culture here in our church, it's the exact opposite. But when you go out into the world, you get back to that Judaistic reality that you are surrounded by false converts. Your life needs to be a display of true conversion. In verse 6 of Romans 7, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. See, the law held the Pharisees captive such that they were willing to add additional captivity with additional laws, the Mishnah. Paul says, we're released from that. How? Having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we trust the Spirit of God to give us illumination with regard to His Word. Romans 8.1, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so the true believer, after he's looked at this over and over and over, he realizes that his conversion was a result of the work of the Spirit. So he points to the work of the Spirit. He doesn't point to his own work, his doing, his decision, his prayer. He doesn't point to any of that. He no longer rests on his doing. He rests on the reality that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. This is much like 2 Corinthians 5 where he, he, Paul says, uh, he who knew no sin became sin. He, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And then he was executed, right? And so God's wrath was appeased. It was propitiated. Sin was propitiated in Christ's death. This text in Romans goes on in verse 6 to say, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It's obvious. And then in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. I can remember on numerous occasions, explaining to a seemingly new believer, you know, God has taken you from hatred for him unto love for him. And the response often has been, I never hated God. See, that's a person who needs to be taught. He needs to be shown this text. Every individual on the face of the planet is born into a hatred for God. See, the person who refuses to believe that wants nothing to do with being born again. He wants to make some sort of decision that he can take credit for. 
Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. That's total depravity. It cannot subject itself to the law of God. It can sure pretend well. Plenty of people do, and Nicodemus certainly did. He set the standard. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Boy, they sure think they can. And that false conversion is a desperate, desperate condition. But the astonishing compulsion of the Holy Spirit, the irresistible grace of the rebirth, is what legitimately grants life and results in legitimate change, a love for righteousness and a love for the brethren, a willingness to serve, a a willingness to cultivate one's spiritual gifts, a willingness to be involved in an effective, practical, ongoing, increasing way. So contrary to what so many of you have heard throughout the years in other contexts. The church, it's a club. It's a place where you go to get encouragement, you know, and you kind of feel better about yourself and whatever else. This text exposes the fact that for Nicodemus, all his involvement was for naught. It was an absolute waste. In fact, it was condemning. Not for you. If you're born again, you love Christ. You want to be legitimately connected. You want to be interdependent with the body, and you're growing in your understanding and your appreciation for that. You no longer hate God. You love him, and you love his children. Any method of entrance into the kingdom of God other than irresistible grace is a gateway unto false conversion. It's an astonishing compulsion, an amazing divine capture a stunningly heavenly incarceration unto eternal life. It's God's doing. It's freedom from dishonesty about one's total depravity, and it is freedom from total depravity. While the one born of the Spirit laments his former total depravity, the one born of the flesh denies his current total depravity. While the one born of the Spirit has experienced an astonishing compulsion unto Christ, the one still born of the flesh expresses a lackluster pseudo-Christianity that leads only to legalistic criticism of others and pharisaical exaltation of self. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. See, that's irresistible grace. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 6, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come unto me unless it is granted him by the Father. Well, that's review of last week. Today, the Son of Man was lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so we'll quickly work our way through the remaining verses here, verses 13 through 15. And I want to show you, I want you to see the attainable confidence of the reborn believer. The attainable confidence of the reborn believer. 
There's a sense in which the matter of eternal security completely misses the point. The discussion between certain denominations of whether or not the phrase once saved, always saved is true is really missing the point. You know, some might even ask that when visiting a church. Well, do they believe once saved, always saved? It misses the point. There are much greater discussions that need to take place. The issue is that when God sets someone apart, as Scripture, not only in the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, indicates that he will, because of God's elective decree in eternity past, he sets someone apart unto a life of righteousness, that holiness, then that actually happens. And that is a person about whom we would say he has eternal life, as Paul testifies in 1 Thessalonians 1 in a very pastoral way, you see it throughout the New Testament, but especially in 1 Thessalonians 1, you see this act of Paul on behalf of Silas and Timothy saying, we rejoice. Why? Because we know you are chosen. Why? Because of your faith as it is proclaimed throughout Macedonia and Achaia, all throughout the region. People would testify. That's why I brought to your attention earlier, there are people about whom you would say, that person is faithful. That person is effective in the body of Christ. That person's activity, his spirit-filled conduct, is resulting in the salvation of the lost and the sanctification of the saved. That's what Paul is saying about the Thessalonians. So attaining this confidence is to rest in the truth that we see in verses 13 through 15. This attainable confidence shouldn't lead to you saying, you know, we believe once saved, always saved. It should lead to you to say the person who is born again has new life, Romans 6, verse 4. And you should be able to say that about yourself with great joy. And at the same time, you should obey 2 Corinthians 13, which says examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith, especially in those moments where you're really frustrated. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So this speaks of Jesus' eternality, really his deity in eternity past. He speaks of himself here. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side side. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. The son being at the father's side is, in fact, God. We saw that established in John 1. In chapter 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus says these words to the father, having accomplished the work that you gave to me to do. And now, father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, Again, he's speaking of this reality that he has seen God. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And who are they? Well, ultimately, Jesus here speaks of himself, but there are some exceptions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So the second Adam is from heaven. The first Adam is from the earth. Jesus, the second Adam, Adam comes from heaven. In Proverbs 13, verse 1, the words of Agur, son of Jacheth, the oracle, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. 
I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Well, the point here is that no one grasps the wind in his hand. No one other than God himself descends from heaven. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Only God. But as I said, there are some exceptions. In Matthew 27, verse 52, Scripture declares, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So these were the saints who had gone to be with the Lord in a temporary condition, and when their bodies were resurrected at the moment of Jesus' resurrection, a small few were selected in order to display this miraculous reality that because of Jesus' resurrection, these other individuals were resurrected and walked throughout the city and were seen by many, the text says. So you have a small handful of people here who went to heaven for a time and returned. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to himself by saying, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. As Paul often does, he speaks of himself in the third person as a display of humility. He indicates here, I don't really want to boast. There's a sense in which this is going to sound like boasting. And so he goes so far as to use a reference of himself in the third person. But he speaks of this point at which he entered heaven and he came back. But he even says, I really don't know much about it. So all these displays, explanations of uh, children who say they've gone to heaven, it's all lies. It's books intended to make money, movies intended to make money. No one who makes a movie, writes a book, and tells things about heaven that you don't see in Scripture is telling the truth, but they're making an awful lot of money. And a little at a time, one at a time, these people who have written these books are confessing they made it all up. If you do just a quick Google search, you'll find that there are great familial battles going on between those who insist, no, it was true, and the one who claimed that it was true is saying, no, I didn't go to heaven. I know I said I went to heaven, but I made it all up. I was four years old at the time, like most four-year-olds do. Well, in John eleven twenty three, Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So here's another instance where an individual died and went to be with the Lord. Paul says absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he went to be with the Lord and Jesus brought him back. And he did that to display his power over death. And then, of course, that illustrated and pre-shadowed his own resurrection, which would come later. So you have this reality in verse 13 that sets God apart from all others. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so Jesus uses this phrase about himself that he being man now has always been God. It's an expression of his deity and his humanity, the son of man, 100% 
man. He's already established his deity. Now he speaks of his humanity and he speaks of the reality that when he came to the earth, you don't want to say he became a man. That's not the right way to say it. You want to say he robed himself in flesh. He robed himself in humanity. He took on humanity. To say he became a man sounds as if you're saying that he became not God. Now, I know that you don't mean that if you use that phrase, but the real issue is that God, who is always God in eternity past, took on humanity, not that he somehow morphed from deity unto humanity. You just want to be careful with that. Well, Jesus here speaks of the fact that he who comes from heaven is unique. And he speaks again of his deity having come from heaven, but coming to the earth as a man. Well, verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, this, as you know, is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. The people came impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, this is not really unusual. Plenty of people, as you know from 1 Corinthians 11 and even from 1 John, plenty of people come to know the Lord and they complain and they reject truth and they reject obedience and they do that time and time and time again and God eventually takes them. This is a current reality. Now, I don't think it's possible for you or me to certainly determine uh, about someone's life that that happened, but you can know that it does happen, and it certainly happened in this case. And so Moses prayed for the people because they asked that he pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents. Verse 8 then, and Numbers 21 says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. This is a spiritual inoculation. This is a divine effort to provide that which would be a remedy unto the condition of those who continued in their sin. Like a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Much of Roman Catholicism today and other false religions will take passages like this and create some form of idolatry. You have the beads or you have the Mary statue on your dashboard or something along those lines. And so they say, well, this is how it works. It was not the bronze serpent in the same way that the sacrificial system was not the vehicle by which God provided grace. It was faith. 
It was believing. That's why I started by reading to you from John 20, verse 31, that believing they may have eternal life. Now, believing is going to result in changed conduct. But many times false religions today and really throughout history have taken idols and attempted to use those idols to produce something that they can't produce. The vehicle is faith. It's belief in truth. Just as the death-stricken Israelites would find healing and new life in obeying God and looking to the symbolic serpent raised up to bring glory to God in his exclusive ability to save, all self-inflicted, death-stricken sinners today may find spiritual healing and new life in looking to the person of Jesus Christ who was raised up to die and raised up unto resurrection life. Hebrews 9.22 gives us some insight into this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the same way that the serpent was lifted up, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just as those who looked at the serpent were healed, those who legitimately look to the Savior are healed. But there is so much false conversion with those who look to an almost Jesus. Jesus who is not the God of sovereign grace. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. You see, it's the reborn believer, the one who's truly reborn, the one who's truly born again, the one who has been caused to be born again, to use the Apostle Peter's words. That is the one who has attainable confidence. His confidence is not in what he has done. His confidence is what has been done specifically for him. That's where his confidence rests. And so he looks to the one who has been raised up. In the same way that the Israelites looked to the serpent, which God had commanded of them, it might have seemed odd, but God commanded it. Don't tell me there aren't doctrines in the New Testament that you would say seem kind of odd. But the problem is, the person says, that's odd. I'm unable to believe it. He rejects it. What if the Israelites had done that? And some probably did. That doesn't make any sense. Look at a fiery serpent. It's the serpents that are killing us. That doctrine doesn't fit my ability to understand it. And so they would have rejected it and they would have died. But the ones who obeyed the command of God were the ones that he saved, rather than those who in their own earthly, worldly intelligence, or what Paul would call in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, worldly wisdom, which is actually foolishness, they go to their death. They go to their death thinking that they're headed for heaven Paul says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Later in chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The person who has not legitimately tasted that the Lord is good, but thinks that he was good enough to make a good decision, doesn't really drink of the pure milk of the word. And see, he never develops the nutritional health that comes like it comes for the baby that's fed well who eventually is able to walk and run and talk and do the things that normal humans do. But for the person who thinks that he brought himself unto new life, he never engages in that stage of foundational, formative, spiritual growth, and therefore he rejects the deeper truths, the meat, as the writer of Hebrews calls it in Hebrews 5. He says they're dull of hearing, and by now you ought to be teaching these truths, and yet you still Reject truth. Well, closely related to our text and coming up next week, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To whom does God give eternal life? It is not inaccurate to say that he gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. Everyone who looks to the Savior, God grants eternal life and he keeps them jude 1 1 to 2 says jude a servant of jesus christ and brother of james to those who are called beloved in god and the father and kept for jesus christ how does a person stay in the faith because god keeps him in the faith verses 24 to 25 in the book of jude now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's our faith. That's the victory. It's the believing, believing. It's the increasing believing. It's the willingness to say, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. It's a willingness to be surrounded by people who would help with that. If those who are in your home with you can't say that about you with fullness, it's probably not true. People who know you best would know about you that you are born of God because you overcome the world. You're not bamboozled. You're not deceived by the world. You don't look at the things of the world and say, man, this is great. You look at the things of the world and say, this is great that we have an opportunity to influence them by how we live. Verse 5 in 1 John 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, Nicodemus did not receive God's testimony. He rejected it. How do we know that? John 3.11 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know 
and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus says that to Nicodemus in the midst of this hypocrisy-exposing conversation that plenty of hypocrites that you know need to have. They need to have it with you. It needs to be an act of grace. Your life needs to be so compelling that they would come to you and say, you know what, I'm troubled. I think I've performed well. In fact, some would say, I'm the teacher. You know, people at work would say, I'm the religious guy. But you know what, I'm troubled. You know people like that. Maybe there are people like that in this room. The love of Jesus, the true doctrine-focused love of Jesus is that which they need. And you see Jesus eventually defended by Nicodemus in chapter 7. You might say, you know, what if I'm not of the elect? You've heard that before, haven't you heard that? What if I'm not of the elect? It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The right question is, what if I don't believe? That's the right question. What if I reject truth? Here's a better question. What if I do believe? But I'm still scared. I often don't believe, and my life seems to indicate I'm not a believer. Then believe. Believe. Believe the truth of the Word of God. Subject yourself to the truth of the Word of God. Don't reject it. Don't dismiss it. Don't explain it away. Subject yourself to people that you know are faithful to Scripture. And you see it in their impact on other people's lives. Don't be mystified by the fact that somebody believes a doctrine that you think can't possibly be true, but yet he's having an immense impact on other people's lives. Recognize that that doctrine is the reason. It's because he or she believes. And rest in this truth, this truth from John in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Father, we rest in the Son of God. We thank you for him, and we trust you to help us to have belief where we have unbelief. Lord, you have blessed us with a rich camaraderie, a vibrancy of fellowship, Lord, when I think of our family group ministry and the stimulus for me personally, when I hear when someone has grappled with these truths and has worked to put them on paper and to communicate them to our group, I am I'm overwhelmed, I'm sanctified, I'm strengthened. Father, that reality exposes the fact that there are those in our midst who have no interest in that. We trust that you would expose false conversion in your kindness and your love. Use faithful servants who will speak the truth in love. And we ask that your word would go forth with power and that you might move on the hearts of those who've rejected sound doctrine who've attempted to explain it away by saying things like, we'll just agree to disagree, Lord, 
I trust that you would bring us to the conclusive reality that you give unity of spirit to all those who have the spirit and walk by the spirit. Lord, use us to expose and solve the problem of aggravated confusion for the false convert who does so well in certain contexts and yet in the context of truth he's troubled lord we pray that you as we study the book of john and continue through it that you would further expose the great and very real line between those who are born again and those who are falsely converted that we might communicate the message that those who believe that Jesus is the Christ is the Son of God and that by believing they might have eternal life in him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.